0: When we were in Sinaloa, we spoke to the drug trafficker who told us they had paid $50,000 to a Colombian chemist to teach them to make fentanyl. Within a week, they had made those $50,000 back.
1: Hello and welcome to On Assignment. We're back with the third episode of our summer series where we talk to this past year's DuPont winners about journalism. I'm Abby Wright here with my co-host, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Not only is today's guest a 2017 DuPont winner, but she was featured in one of our March video series that we produced in honor of Women's History Month.
2: Yes. Today we're talking to Marianna Van Zeller, who won a DuPont this year for the story Death by Fentanyl which examines the rise of the opiate addiction crisis with a little bit of a twist.
1: Yeah, it was so amazing. Mariana was here at the J School earlier this year to accept the award, but she's also a former student. And she's been working on a lot of different projects recently, but we were lucky enough to connect with her briefly to ask her a couple of questions. So hello, Mariana.
0: Hi, Lisa and Abby. How are you guys doing?
1: We're good. I just have one
2: question to start. How many places have you been to in the last month? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Domestically in the United States, I think I've been to about 15 different cities. It's been crazy. It's been a whirlwind. Okay. So to follow up with that,
2: can you just kind of break down a little bit what your work model is? It sounds like it's a hybrid.
0: It is. I I do a little bit of producing and a lot of uh, uh, correspondent uh, work. Uh, Currently, I'm working on four different uh, sort of with four different outlets, um, I'm still a chief correspondent for the investigative team at Fusion, which is where I made the documentary Death by Fentanyl, um, which is a great place, and they've given me um, enormous freedom in the sort of stories we tell, and it's been a great experience. And then I've also been doing some stories for National Geographic Explorer, which has also had me traveling all around the world and the country doing some really interesting stories and, um, and a couple of other places. So it's been, um, it's been great. Sounds amazing. So, Mariana, for people who haven't followed
1: the most recent piece, talk a little bit about fentanyl. How did you start reporting on the rise of fentanyl, and what what brought it to your attention?
0: Um, I'll have to go back about 10 years ago, uh, which is when we did a, a documentary called The Oxycotton Express. I was working at Current TV. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was Al Gore's television station. At the time, my husband and I, uh, my husband is also a documentary producer and we worked together for many years, um, found out through another producer that there was a, a lot of pain pills being sort of trafficked from Florida all the way up and down the eastern seaboard, essentially, and that pills were responsible for a lot of overdose deaths. And um, this was the beginning, sort of, of uh, the opiate epidemic uh, that we're seeing now. So we decided to head down to Florida and did a one-hour investigative documentary about it, which won a, a Peabody Award, and um, you know was we were very happy with uh, with how it came out. But it really exposed what was happening and how people were abusing oxycotton, and how in places like Florida where. Uh, nine or 10 people a day were dying from Oxycontin and from these pain pill clinics that were dispensing them like like candy. They're known as pill mills, right? The pill mills, exactly. So from there, we stayed in touch with a lot of our sources. And a couple of years later, we found out that a lot of people had actually switched from prescription pills to heroin because it was more redi- readily available and cheaper And um, yeah, easier to find than pills than OxyContin at the time. So after the OxyContin Express, we did a follow up to that documentary called The Gateway to Heroin, where we looked at how users were moving on from uh, pills, prescription pills to heroin, because it was more readily available and and cheaper um, than pills. We've been following the opiate epidemic since then. And A year and a half ago, I started receiving emails from our sources telling us that there was this new drug that had sort of hit the streets and that was having a devastating impact, that people were overdosing um, left and right from this incredibly powerful drug that was 50 times stronger than heroin. And it was called fentanyl. Now, I'd heard about fentanyl. I knew it was a a prescription uh, drug that was approved by the FDA uh, for terminally ill cancer patients with breakthrough pain. It was only approved by the FDA for this. Um, but I did not know that it was being abused at such, um, at such levels. So we started looking into this, and uh, soon we found ourselves traveling from uh, Massachusetts all the way to Sinaloa where in uh, Chapo's land, uh, where we were able to see sort of uh, where this, these drugs were coming from and the impact that is having in places like New England.
1: Before seeing your story, I had barely heard of fentanyl. Now I feel like I can't turn around without seeing a story about it and the terrible toll it's taking. But with all the experience that you have had, that you had before you started doing the story, covering the opioid crisis, what about fentanyl in particular shocked you?
0: You know, as a journalist, uh, when you delve into some of these stories you don't have the luxury of having all the reporting already done for you. So many times it's a little bit of a risk. You, you you sort of sense that there's a good story there, that there's something that should be told, but you don't realize the extent of it. With with fentanyl, I mean, as soon as we hit the ground and we started talking to you know addicts, drug users on the streets, and family members, drug addiction specialists, I mean, everyone was telling us how within less than a year that... Uh, fentanyl was everywhere. I mean, we spoke to drug users who were telling us that even if they wanted to find heroin, most of the heroin they were seeing was was either laced with fentanyl or was, was pure fentanyl. And then we realized throughout our reporting that in 2015, in New Hampshire alone, five times more people had overdosed and died from fentanyl than they did from heroin. And that blew our minds. We, we, we knew it was big. We knew that people were using it. We knew it was dangerous, but we didn't realize the extent of the problem. And then soon after our, our documentary came out, about two months after, I believe, um, Prince overdosed on fentanyl. So people started looking a little bit more and being more aware. But, I mean, in places like New Hampshire and Massachusetts, they've been feeling it on the ground for, for over a year now.
2: And since you've finished reporting this past year? Have things changed yet again?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the numbers of people dying from uh, the opiate epidemic in general uh, continues to rise. And experts say that it's mainly because of, um, you know, an increase in in use, but also because of how potent and how dangerous fentanyl is. Again, 50 times stronger than heroin. Uh, One of the people that we portrayed in our our story um, was a mother in Massachusetts who's, she has three sons and two overdosed from opiates. And the second son, the last son that overdosed uh, was just a couple of years ago. His name was Patrick. He apparently had been cleaned for a few months and relapsed and uh, people that knew him say that he thought he was buying heroin and using heroin. And instead, when he relapsed, uh, he was using pure fentanyl. And um, and yeah, this is happening a lot. It's, it's killing a lot of people all around our country. It's tragic.
1: So a lot of the reporting you do, Mariana, has involved some—you end up in some pretty dangerous situations. And to win this DuPont Award for death by fentanyl— you actually embedded with a Mexican drug gang. At one point, you were even left stranded alone with a half a kilo of heroin next to you. (laughs) Tell us about
0: that. I did. There are two types of fentanyl. There's the pharmaceutical fentanyl, which is, again, the most powerful painkiller on the market. used and approved by the FDA to only treat cancer patients with breakthrough pain. You know, the problem is that some pharmaceutical companies that make fentanyl, they essentially started illegally marketing and pushing the drug to people with mild pain. So a lot more people became exposed to this drug than should have been. And then we realized also that the Mexican cartels found out that there was this sort of new popular pharmaceutical drug called fentanyl that And they realized that they could actually make it themselves and start shipping up to the United States. So it's with that purpose to find out how it was being done in Mexico and where exactly it was coming from that we flew to Sinaloa. This was just a couple of weeks before El Chapo was actually apprehended after the second time that he escaped from prison. And we spent a few days there and found ourselves right in the center of the Sinaloa cartel and their territory and speaking to a drug trafficker who told us how they ship large quantities of heroin and fentanyl and increasingly fentanyl to the United States. In some cases, they were saying that they were shipping more fentanyl than, than heroin these days. And the reason is because it's easier to make. It's all made with synthetic chemicals that are coming from China. They don't have to depend on, you know, the, the, the poppy seasons or, um, you know, how the poppies are, are growing or not. Um, it's also cheaper to produce. And, um, and it's, again, easy to traffic up to the United States. And there's an enormous demand for this. So the problem happened was that while we were interviewing this trafficker and uh, talking to him and he was showing us the fentanyl that they were going to ship up to the United States, um, we heard, we started hearing a lot of noise outside. And he his radio, the, all these Sinaloa cartel members travel with several uh, phones and radios and and he started. It started beeping, and it was somebody in the in his uh, in the Sinaloa cartel. Apparently, that was uh, warning that the Marines, the Mexican Marines, were close by, so that we had to move quick. And uh he told us to wait a second. he said we should we were in a small little house. He said we should get out of the house, but wait outside until uh, he told us it was okay to leave so suddenly we found ourselves outside with half a kilo of uh, heroin laced with fentanyl right next to us um until until he came back and told us that the Marines had left, and it was okay for us to leave it was It was a scary situation, but you know, we don't we don't go into those situations without knowing all the risks involved, and we definitely don't go without the absolute, uh, you know, permission from the cartel themselves. And once we do have the permission from them, and they know that we're there, um, and we're very clear that we're journalists and what we're doing, um, you know, in some ways, it's it's a way to feel more protected. I guess. So this is only the latest
2: of your risky reporting. It seems to be something that you are drawn to, or. is attracted to you. I don't know. Uh, And I have so many questions about that. Do you recognize like a thrill out of doing this kind of reporting?
0: Not so much. I wouldn't say that I'm drawn to it. I've done a lot of drug stories. Uh, I am drawn to drug stories. I I guess I'm the opiate epidemic in this country. um, Experts say it's the worst uh, drug epidemic in American history. And I've been covering Mm -hmm. this for over 10 years now. And I've seen the impact that it's had on families all across the United States, the devastating impact where mothers, like the one that we profiled for death by fentanyl, have lost two of her three sons to this crisis. And I do believe that it's been underreported for many years now. Uh, Because of that, uh, I've always tried to do as many stories as I could about it to sort of raise awareness. And if you're trying to find out where the drugs are coming from, who's selling them, and uh, where they're being made, you end up in situations like in the middle of the Sinaloa cartel territory, uh, which are not always uh, safe. But yet, uh, we do not go to these situations. And I never go to these situations without being fully aware of the risks and having a lot of backup plans and, and knowing sort of having an exit strategy. But so far, you know, it's, um, we always have a plan in place. And thank God nothing bad ever happened.
1: Indeed. So you say this story was underreported for many years. And I've heard some people criticizing the media that, oh, we're only paying attention to this opioid crisis because now it's impacting the white population. Do
0: you have any thoughts on that? I believe it was underreported because when talking about drugs, usually we tend to focus on the drugs coming from outside of the United States. Um, And it's easier to point the finger at Mexico and at Colombia and all the other drug-producing countries and say that it's their fault. People here in the United States are dying. Um, In this case, in the case of the opiate epidemic, we realized with our reporting over, again, over 10 years ago that it was actually the pharmaceutical companies um, that had created a lot of the problems with the opiate uh, crisis. Um, when you see that from 1999 to 2010, the use of OxyContin in the United States quadrupled. And it's not because four times more people were in pain and in need of pills like OxyContin. It's because they had a brilliant marketing campaign and were able to convince doctors that was incredibly important for Americans not to feel any pain and that OxyContin was not addictive. And they made you know millions and millions of dollars from this drug. Well, actually, what I wanted to just point out from what you're saying is it
2: sounds like the people who are now making the drug synthetically in places like Sinaloa are... The pharmaceutical companies have created their own competitors in a way, no?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, they. It, what's so interesting is that when we were in Sinaloa, we spoke to the drug trafficker who told us that they had paid $50,000 to a Colombian chemist to come up to Sinaloa and teach them how to uh, mix all the chemicals that are actually coming from China to make fentanyl, and that within a week, they had made those $50,000 back. So it was one of the best investments in their lives, they were telling us. And they basically learned the textbook lesson learned from what was happening here in the United States. We spoke to drug users and dealers in the United States, in Massachusetts, who told us that way before fentanyl was even this popular, they were able to get pharmaceutical fentanyl from some people who were being prescribed. That They'd get their hands on these patches, and they would microwave the patches uh, to make the gel softer, and they would mix it with the heroin, and they would use it to make their heroin stronger, and then they would also mix it with heroin that they were selling to other people. So in in many ways, the Sinaloa cartel and Mexican cartels are sort of copying the drug trends, uh, obviously the drug trends that are happening here in the United States, but also, you know, how to mix these drugs and um, how to make them popular for American consumption, which is incredibly scary. Mm, It's incredibly
1: sophisticated.
0: Yes, right, absolutely.
1: Responding to their market demand, to what the market wants. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: Can I just get back a little bit to the danger part? Because you talk about taking precautions. I mean, can you help out our young journalists uh, from Columbia Journalism School just starting out? uh, What kinds of tips you might give Mm -hmm. them precaution-wise?
0: I would say that if you're going to places like uh, Sinaloa um, and trying to get in some of these sort of, you know, drug trafficking territories, the most important part is always to... Be absolutely sure that they know you're going and that they are okay with you being there. Um, be absolutely sure that you're going uh, as journalists and that they are, you're openly showing that you're a journalist. I was just recently, earlier this year, in Guerrero State that has become the number one producer of heroin to the United States. And it has also, because of that, has become one of the most violent states in Mexico. And uh, we were there doing a story about the rise of uh, the auto defensas, the um, vigilante groups because of the violence that is happening and the drug trafficking that is happening in in Guerrero. And uh, while there, we went into some pretty risky, you know, um, places. But everywhere we went, we went with a car that had press written all over it. The first thing we tell people is that we are journalists, because the last thing you want them to think is that you are a DEA agent or some sort of American law enforcement. You know, that's what they really don't like. Um, so by telling everybody in advertising that you're journalists and you're just there to ask questions is, is, is a little bit of a shield of protection. That being said, uh, a journalist that we spoke to while in Mexico for that particular story, who was a journalist from Guerrero State, um, who had given us some really important information about the story, uh, a few weeks after we left Guerrero, he was shot and killed. Um, so journalists uh, in, in Mexico, um, you know, are being killed, um, you know, every year uh, while reporting, which is incredibly sad. Yes. Javier Valdez, correct? Yes. That was his name, Javier Valdez. Yeah. He was a Cabot winner.
1: So he, he had been honored here at Columbia and at, Low Library. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I, I'd say that also as foreign journalists, we have the luxury many times of going to these places and then leaving but a lot of times we work with local journalists and we have to always be very careful, even if we're willing to take those risks, to be absolutely sure that they are too. Um, we, you know, we work with these, what we call fixers or field producers. And it's it's a really sort of tricky situation sometimes because we'll be in these places for you know a few days or a few weeks and then we come back. But you know, it's much more dangerous to be a Mexican journalist working in Mexico. So we have to be absolutely sure that we're all aware of the risks and, um, you know, that we that we protect not only ourselves, but those local journalists that were working with us.
1: Absolutely. And then conversely, what was their motive in talking to you? Do you think they liked the attention or they wanted, they were showing off? Or what would motivate someone in the Sinaloa drug cartel to talk to you?
0: I, I believe they like the attention, Um you know, it's in this case, it's an American television crew coming from very far away, uh, who you know wants to talk to them about what their their business.
2: Their very successful business.
0: They were just very proud, and they. I asked them about, do you realize the consequences? Do you realize what impact this is having in the United States? And they say we we understand, but really for us this is our business, and there's not as if, it's not as if we have a lot of opportunities here. So we found something that we are successful at that we can you know make money from, and um, it, they they believe it's um, you know wrong wrongly. So I I think, but they think it's uh, the responsibility of those taking the drugs. You know, it's it's complicated. Yeah.
1: So Mariana, when Keith Sumo spoke at the DuPont Awards at the ceremony, he said, word for word, when Mariana von Zeller tells you to do a story, you do the story. So it <laughs> seems like you have excellent pitching skills. Can you share some advice to J School students on pitching an idea and getting an editor to say yes? Persistence. <laughs> it's just
0: persistence. <laughs> it's just not, not not accepting a no for an answer. Um, in, in this case, I went to Keith. i Six months before we started reporting this, even a year, actually, in January 2015, uh, I I sent an email and called Keith and told him, there's this new drug that nobody's talking about. You've never heard of it, I can guarantee, but it's killing people and it's becoming more and more popular on the streets. It's called fentanyl and we have to do this story And, uh, and Keith wasn't, he said, we just did, you know, a drug story. I'm not, I don't want to do another one. Um, and then I kept on it for almost a year. I kept every little thing that I would find out about fentanyl. And every time I was able to speak to our sources in Mexico or any little information, I would call him again and say, Keith, this is going to become a big story. I'm telling you, we have to do this story. And after, you know, many, many months of persistence, um, he agreed and, uh, I'm very happy he did
1: you and Elizabeth Warren she persisted
0: (laughs) (laughs) great comparison I love it
2: (laughs) Marianne you are a J school graduate I am and uh, I think there's some interesting questions that get raised about the worth of a J school education what do you think is it necessary is Mm -hmm. it some what what has it done for you
0: oh for me it's given me my my career Um, Yeah, I applied three years to go to Columbia University. Uh, The first year, I wasn't accepted. The second year, I was put on a wait list. And the third year, I flew to New York, even though it was discouraged. And I knocked on the dean's door and I told him, my name is Marianne, I'm from Portugal, and my dream is to attend Columbia University. And what did he say? And he said... Well, I love Portugal. Why don't you sit down and we can talk? And we had a one-hour-long conversation about journalism and why I wanted to be a journalist and why I wanted to attend Columbia University. And that year, I got accepted. And I remember when I got the call, I was working at a Portuguese television station at the time, and I, I got an email, actually. I got an email from Columbia University saying I was accepted. And I was in the newsroom, and I started yelling and crying at the same time. And, uh, and it was one of the happiest days of my life. To me, Columbia University um, was my window of opportunity into American journalism. I, I knew I wanted to be a journalist since I was 12 years old. Uh, I used to watch the anchors on Portuguese television and think, wow, these, they know so much about the world. And uh, for me, knowledge was always very important and uh, i i didn 't realize they were reading from a teleprompter, but I thought these they memorize so much and they know so much, and I want to be just like them. So I w- really always wanted to be a journalist and uh, and then, um, when I started looking into it, I realized that if I wanted to be a, a you know a journalist and a, a serious journalist that I'd have to attend the best journalism university in the world, and that was Columbia University, so I became very sort of uh, obsessed (laughs) with attending Columbia. I learned so much, made amazing uh, connections, amazing people that I still talk to, teachers that I still talk to, and it was one of the best years of my life.
2: And what a year it was. It was 2001, right? So you arrived, and tell us then what happened.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I arrived in August of 2001, and a month, uh, a few weeks later, uh, 9-11 happened. And I was the only Portuguese journalist in Manhattan at the time that the television station in Portugal that I'd worked for uh, had contact with or or knew they knew that I was there. So uh, they immediately, as it was happening, uh, started contacting me and asked me to uh, cover it for them. They wanted me to go downtown as soon as possible. There was a a building that was being used by foreign journalists who sort of do feeds, uh, live feeds for networks around the world. And I had the Portuguese television station on one side and my mother on another phone begging me and crying and begging me not to leave the house. And it was tough, and I had to tell her mom, "This is this is my life. This is why I'm here." And uh, so I ended up in a building on in Midtown, reporting live for Portugal uh, the day, that night, the evening newscast. I was the sort of first face that you know my family in Portugal, my friends in Portugal saw, uh, reporting on 9/11. And it was an interesting situation. I was 24, 25 years old at the time, and um, I was incredibly nervous um I remember shaking and thinking oh am I going to be able to do this and then I I I did it and I was able to speak I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to put two words together and I was and I remember there was this moment where I I uh the live feed ended and um I had a smile on my face and then I went down um outside and started seeing people with posters um Looking for their missed ones, and I, I get ch- choked up just remembering this again, every time. But um, and yeah, I, I realized that it this was not about me or my career. Um, that these were important stories, and that I wanted to tell these stories with enough context. Um, and that's the day that I decided that I wanted to do uh, investigative documentaries, and I wasn't suited to do the live daily news grind. But what I really wanted to do is give context to these stories and figure out why our world is the way it is and things work the way they do. Um, so yeah, so it was it was a very it was an eye opening day, uh, to say the least. Mm. So that same year while at Columbia, you met your husband,
1: Darren Foster, at the J School, and you guys frequently work together. So what is that like working with your partner? How do you guys make it work?
0: We worked together um, for about six years or more, eight years, we traveled all around the world. Um, initially, Darren, was, Darren studied print uh, journalism at Columbia University. Um, but And then after Columbia, he went to Buenos Aires to work at the Buenos Aires Herald, and I went to London, and then eventually found myself in Syria. This was right after the supposedly the end of the Iraq war when Saddam Hussein was toppled. And uh, I wanted to be sort of close to the action and also learn Arabic. Um, so, Darren came to visit me in Syria, and that was the first time we worked together. Uh, there was all this rumor about these Syrians who were crossing into Iraq to fight against the Americans. It was the beginning of sort of the, the, the insurgency um, in, in, in Iraq. And so, when he came to visit me, we didn't have anything, so we went to the Lebanese border and bought a little camera. And went and did a story about the these first insurgents that were going into Iraq to to fight against the Americans, and at the time I had no intentions of being on camera. I wanted to be a producer and make documentaries, and uh, we had to decide between him or me. Somebody had to do these interviews and had to be on camera, and um, and he and he hates being on camera, and so eventually was decided that I was going to be on camera. And that was my first sort of work as a, as a correspondent. And we started working then and continued working for eight years, more or less, until we had our son. And we still work once in a while together, but not as much because it's complicated to travel. Um, we try to take turns and not, not, be, not both of us be away from our son, who's now almost seven years old. I was going to ask you
2: how that works. Do you flip a coin? How does it? Yeah, does it's it work? it's complicated. We have a
0: family Google calendar going on uh, with dates. Uh, I, I'm also incredibly lucky that my my father lives with us. He moved from Portugal to help us out, um, and he's been incredible. Um, he he's if if by any chance there's some a couple of days where both Darren and I are traveling, my dad is here um, to help with my son. So we're very blessed.
1: That's awesome. Okay, so. Final few questions. We have to ask, as we ask everyone, what is your advice for journalism students who dream of coming here, graduating, and then going on to an eventful,
0: impactful career like yours? I would say be persistent. Find what you really love to do and keep doing it um, for the rest of your life. I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I wasn't sure exactly what kind of journalism I wanted to do, and it wasn't until I actually started working that I realized that I wanted to do um, investigative documentaries. But it's, it's not an easy road. Um, you know, at the beginning, for the first few years, I was a, a freelancer, and in Syria, for example, I, uh, the way that I was able to survive there is that I bought uh, uh, rugs, Syrian rugs, and I would ship them to my family. And my mom would would, uh, host these tea parties uh, in Portugal and sell the rugs and send me back the money. And that's how I I survived. So it's not, you know, it's not always easy. You don't get there as fast as you can. But if you're persistent and uh, you truly have a passion for what you're doing, you'll be able to get there.
2: A little retail and a little reporting. (laughs) A little retail
0: and a little reporting. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Can you talk at all about what your next, what's up next, what we can watch for next?
0: Uh, uh, yes, uh, I'm working on a bunch of uh, new episodes for the Explorer Show National Geographic for season two. I'm also working on a, a long documentary for Fusion, which I'm really excited about, too. Can't tell what exactly it's about, but it's a really interesting and underreported uh, subject. And, uh, and a couple of other things that I can't talk about yet. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a busy, a busy year. And you know this is when journalists are happiest is when they're out in the field and actually working.
1: Great. Well, I'm just so happy that we got to talk to you today, that
0: we got to get a couple minutes with you. Thank you guys so much. I really enjoy doing this.
1: Thank you to Mariana von Zeller. That was a great conversation to wrap up our summer series with. You know, when we started this
2: podcast about two years ago, one of the things that I was most excited about was the chance to talk to some of our past DuPont winners.
1: Yeah, and we get to ask these really great journalists about their lives, go behind the scenes of the reporting and how it's affected them. Which isn't something that they usually talk about most of the time. When you're a journalist, you're reporting other people's stories, not your own. Yeah, so it's been such a pleasure to highlight the outstanding work that reporters are doing right now in what actually seems to be the dawn of another golden age of journalism. Despite all the fake news and alternative facts, there are some really groundbreaking stories being done.
2: And since we know that even the best journalists miss deadlines, we've left the window open a few extra days. Tomorrow, Friday, July 7th, is the absolute last day to enter your best reporting for the 2018 DuPont Awards. Just go to
1: www.dupont.org to enter. This episode was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced today by J-School grad Miriam Sitz, with the assistance of our special projects coordinator, Millie Christy-Dervaux. Our music is by Dylan Nowick, and today's sound engineer was A.J. A- A- Mango. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and find us at
2: OnAssignmentPodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher,
1: or wherever you get your podcasts. So we're signing off from the podcast for the summer. I think the hashtag for this episode has got to be hashtag she persisted for Mariana Von Zeller. We'll see everyone in the fall for a new semester and a new year of the DuPont Awards and many more conversations with the leading journalists in the field. Have a great summer.